morning, everybody. You guys doing well? Hope so. Anybody combine strawberries with those little chocolate muffiny things? That's the play right there. Chocolate and strawberries goes well. Hey, we're going to be uh, studying 1 Samuel 28 today. We've been, I guess this probably means it's our 28th. No, we didn't start in chapter 1. So we've been, at, we've been studying the life of David for several months now. And today is going to be a little bit of a divergence because it's not about David. We'll see how it connects in a minute. Or by the end of the day, we'll, we'll see how it connects. But we, if you want to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 28, that'll get you where we're going. And before we jump into the text, I just want to mention to you, you all, I think overwhelmingly, most of you know that Kelly and I run a program called Blue Ridge Fellows. Every year we invite recent college grads to move to Roanoke and to spend a year with us. And we love this. It's so incredibly fun. And we have our full class coming for next year. We run Labor Day to Memorial Day. And so next Labor Day in September, we'll have a new batch of fellows moving into town. And they're all going to need homes. And one of the, there's a, there's a thousand ways the Church of the Holy Spirit serves the fellows and a thousand ways that the fellows serve the church. But maybe the most significant need that we have every year is for families that have an empty bedroom to invite a fellow to live with them. And on the one hand, it's kind of an extraordinary thing to invite a total stranger to live into your house. But on the other hand, it is over and over and over again, it's just a huge blessing for the families that do it. And it's an enormous blessing to Kelly and I and to the fellows. And so I'd love to just kind of plant a seed in your mind that you could, if you have an empty bedroom, um, you could invite a fellow to live with you. And we've had fellow after fellow after fellow. I don't even know. What are we up to, Kelly? Maybe 80? I'm not 80. How, how many fellows? 50 fellows, maybe, um, that have lived with you guys and have loved you and become friends. And I would just love you to begin to imagine what would it look like to have a godly 22-year-old, 23-year-old living in your home. Maybe if you've got children, they'd be like a big brother, big sister to your kids. Or if your kids are all gone, if you're an empty nester, um, then they could be highly blessed at a pretty low cost if you've got an empty room. So I'd love you to consider that. And I'll give you more details as we go. But start thinking, what would it look like if we invited a fellow to live in our home? All right, 1 Samuel 28. There's a, t- there's a tag in the beginning of this. And we'll read through it. But then it's a, a new story. Let's listen to this. 1 Samuel 28, verse 1. In those days... The Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. And Achish replied, very well, I will, give, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay, this is kind of a connector. In the previous chapter, we saw all this information about David, you know, fl- fleeing here and hiding with Achish. And we're going to see more. There's more to the Achish story later on. But this is just this little kind of bridge and connector. So just a couple quick observations here, and it's not really pertinent to the heart of what we're going to do. Um, what do you think David meant when he said, verse 2, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do? What do you think that meant? What did David mean? Yeah, John? Well, some, uh, some of the words Okay, so pause one second, because I can barely hear you. What's, is there a door that we can close over there? Or a screaming child that we can silence? <laughs> or something? Is there a door? Is it, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, it's ambient here. Those are shut? Okay, all, all we can do is silence the screaming children, and that's going to be hard. Okay, say it again, John. Uh, when the Lord, the 
David is tens of thousands. What would, um, what way could he uh, make himself do the solidarity with the tents of his men? Yes. They were concerned that they would return. They were concerned that they would return on. Yes. I wonder if that is exactly what David was thinking. I think it is. So, so David is using ambiguous language. You're going to see that kind of be true of his, of his conversation with Achish, is that David is being pretty sneaky here. When he says, um, you will see what yourself, what your servant can do, um, is that you're going to see how much I fight for you, or you're going to see how much I fight against you, right? And David is, he's, remember, he's in a situation where he has got to be really tricky. And he is, I think in this instance, sometimes I think he's just outright deceptive. Here, he is speaking an ambiguous language to prepare his way. But and it's gonna, you're going to see it again later on when we come back to the whole, um, on, uh, I think it's chapter 29, we're going to see more of this Achish thing. David is going to speak with ambiguous language that the king doesn't realize is ambiguous. And he thinks he's fighting for him, but in fact David is fighting for Yahweh. He's fighting against the Philistines. We'll, we'll watch it as it plays out. Just, just begin to see that David's words are going to be a little bit tricky, okay? That'll set us up for when we get to chapter 29. But the main event of this chapter is super, super weird. And depending on some of your presuppositions is, is up there in like the, wait a minute, what is the Bible actually saying here, okay? So we'll just kind of take it as it comes. Take a look at chapter 23, or chapter 28, verse 3. Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town in, of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. And the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shenem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. And he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urm or prophets. Saul said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. Okay, this is going to set up one of the darkest moments in Saul's life. Okay, he's got a couple of really, really low points. This is... I don't know if this is number one or number two, but this is a very, very low point in Saul's life, okay? And as we go into it, the narrator sees fit to remind us of a couple of different factors. The narrator is not always going to do this. Sometimes he's going to just expect you to remember, hey, this has happened before. He's going to help you that you're going to catch the, kind of the foreshadowing of the building. But sometimes he's just going to like make an aside and say, hey, P.S., remember that thing that happened? Relevant here. So what are the reminders that he gives? What is he pointing back to from previous things in this whole kind of storyline that he wants us to know? Samuel is dead, okay? We're going to see why that's relevant in a couple minutes. But in case you think he's not, no, no, no. He's dead, cold, buried. Very good. What else is he reminding us of? Saul had driven all the mediums out. Saul had driven out all the mediums and the spiritists. Okay, so let's talk about the mediums and the spiritists. What does that language mean? What is a medium? What is a spiritist, and why did Saul drive them out? So what, first of all, what are they? Like a fortune teller. Like a fortune teller, very good. They speak to the dead. They speak to the dead, okay? So necromancers, right? The, the, the key element here, and it's all of this. You know, you, you'll see the tarot card reading, whatever, all, whatever you'll get today. The Bible takes an incredibly dim view against such things. So if you claim 
that you can hold a seance and, you know, Harry Houdini, do you guys know Harry Houdini was all about the seances? Did you know that? It was a huge thing in his life. He deeply believed or wanted to believe in seances. He was intensely curious. Could anybody bridge the gap? And I think the story is that his wife died prior to him and they had a secret word. They had secret code. Like if one of us dies, let's find out if it's true. And if, if you, you know, so if I go to a seance and they start banging on the table, this is the word. He never found anyone that could actually contact. Nobody knew the password, essentially, right? John? Uh, actually, it was Houdini himself who died first. Is that the, do I have the story reversed? He set up this uh, code uh, right so that uh, if uh, some uh, media claimed to be contacting her, yes. if Houdini was lying, she wouldn't know the code. That's right, exactly. Okay, so I just got the, I got the characters reversed. Now, the Bible talks about this fairly often. Listen to this. Go to Leviticus 20, verse 6, if you want to see this. It's the Lord speaking, and he says, I will set my face against the person who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute himself by following them, and I will cut him off from his people. Do you know what that, do you know what that language, I will cut him off from his people, means? Death. It means death. That's a little bit vague. It might seem like, you know, ostracism. That is capital punishment. God treats that. So Leviticus 6.20, that's a big deal. Or how about this? You can go to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? That's the essence of these spiritists, of these mediums, that they're communicating with the dead. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam throughout the land. And when they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. It's like, it's a big deal. God is super opposed to this whole practice of, you know, consulting the, the witches, the mediums, and the spiritists, which is why I think this is a super low point in, in Saul's life. In fact, and we'll get here eventually. Well, I'll tell you now. Okay, when, when Saul dies, when, he finally, when the final judgment comes for Saul, not yet, it's coming. It's coming sooner than he might like. This is part of the, the I don't know what you call it, the condemnation here. It says, this is 1 Corinthians 10. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned over the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. It's, it's a big deal. So when we, we could read this and be like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's like fortune reading or it's a 1-900 number and it's not that big of a deal. The Bible treats it like it's a really big deal, okay? Like it's like, it's like a, Saul, we've seen Saul's kind of like decay, 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 but this is, a, this is a big deal. Okay, Zach. What significance is there of verse 5 and 28, um, not 5, 6, when he inquired to the Lord first before he asked for the meat? Yeah. Is there, is there any significance that he, he only went to the meeting because he didn't get anything? Yes. That's a, okay, that's a great, so that's an excellent question. So Zach is saying, well, but he does, you know, inquire of the Lord, and then he doesn't get anything, and then he pulls this other strategy. That's true. So let's, 
Um, let's come back to that in a minute, but it's an excellent observation. So good, good catch in the text, and we'll kind of we'll unpack it as we go, and we'll see what he does and why he does it and how the Lord responds to him. Um, but for now, just recognize, okay, pay attention. This stuff matters. This is, this is important to the Lord, okay? And we'll, we'll see how he does it all here. All right, so um, the reminders are Samuel's dead. The reminders are that Saul had already kicked all the mediums out. And so what, about, what, what does it mean if Saul kicked all the mediums out? What does that tell us about Saul's knowledge set here? He knew he shouldn't. He knew he shouldn't, all right? He doesn't get to claim ignorance. Like, it's like saying, I didn't know the speed limit, but you put up the speed limit sign. You know, like, he knows, he knows exactly what it is, okay? Um, what, let, let's start here. What do you think happens if you go to a seance? Do you think that it's tricks and smoke and mirrors and, you know, you're banging on a button and makes a ghosty sounds? Or do you think the dead speak to these people? Just get, a, get an early, early sense. How many, it, and maybe you don't know, but do you, are you inclined to think that going to see a medium or a spiritist is likely to result in trickery, deception, fraud, or a genuine connection to the other world? Who, says, who thinks it's all fraud and deception? Pretty overwhelmingly. You think it could be? Okay, who thinks, it, who thinks it's real or it could be real? A couple, handful. Okay, and Kat, you're saying both. Tell me what you mean. Um, I had an experience once. I wasn't personally there, but I was told about a group of my friends who went to somebody's house for a party. And this lady, uh, she had some kind of, you know, was saying she had some kind of supernatural powers. And so they were doing something like that. And she predicted the death in a car crash of a friend. Mm. Actually did happen. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of stories of things that seem to maybe, you know, cast, you know, credibility to it. So we generally think it's deception. There's some, some here that think that maybe it could be. John? I think that uh, most of them are frauds. And these investigations uncover a lot of frauds. But your grave risk because number one, you're doing something God has clearly forbidden. And number two, your grave risk is that medium may contact somebody and it ain't, it ain't grand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's see. This, with with kind of knowing some of your presuppositions, let's just see how the text plays out, okay? So um, let's see. Where have we already got? We've already gotten through verse 7, right? So let's back up Saul's context. Why does he consult a medium? What's going, what's going on that per, per, sends him down this path? He wants to talk to Samuel. He wants to talk to Samuel, and what's that? He is afraid, right? So take a look at it, and, and it says... Uh, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart, right? Fear is a powerful motivator. When we're afraid, we do things we might not otherwise do or things that we know we ought not do. But he was really filled with dread. And we, we, we can see his fear not only because um, he is, it, the text explicitly says so and he knows that he's, he's going to be facing this. But in order to go get to this spiritist, to this medium, you're going to see this in the next couple of verses, He's going to travel. He's got to sneak past the Philistine army. It would not be obvious from reading the text, but if you looked at a map, he is like, he's in a state of desperation. And sometimes when you're desperate, you do dumb things, right? And Saul has a record of doing pretty dumb things when he's in that place of desperation. Jennifer? When I read this, he was afraid of Goliath, too. Saul was like a, not a very strong leader. Yeah, I mean, well, he's 
fear marks his life, right, all the time. He's afraid of David, so he's chucking spears. He's afraid of, he's afraid of Jonathan. He's afraid, he's absolutely afraid. And, and that gives us some indication of how powerful fear is, right? Not just in Saul's life, but in, in my life, you know? Kelly? Plus he's um, fully aware that God's pronounced that he's ever passing him through the kingdom, that he's passing it on to David. And his whole pursuit of David is because he's like, oh, I'm not going to Yes. And now, God won't answer his prayers. He won't respond to the dreams, the Urim and Thummim, which is probably a, a second class Urim and Thummim because David has the real one, isn't responding. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So he's like, uh, you know, like, it's not just that he's afraid of the Philistines. God has left him. That's right. That's right. And we know what that's like when, when, when your old strategies don't work and you begin to flail and try the next strategy. And you just start pulling any lever that you can. And Zach, that's, I think, if you look at it here, he's in a, he's in a pretty, pretty rough place. It, it specifically says, uh, I've lost it all. Um, where is it, dude? Oh, yeah. He inquired of the Lord, verse 6, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim, that's just those rocks that we don't or by the prophets. So let's figure out why not. Why is God completely, God is not responding to Saul's messages, and he used to. There had been a time where Saul felt that intimate connection, right? So why not? What's going on with that? He lifted his spirit from him. He did, Ann. Yeah. Like, God has expressly like unambiguously removed himself from Saul, right? Saul's disobedience, Saul's rebellion, Saul's love of himself over all things compels God to remove his hand, and he's not going to get it back. And that's really the great difficulty. He could, could submit. He could accept the new terms, and I would not be shocked if he had accepted the new, God is endlessly gracious. If you accept his terms, if you humble yourself before him, is record after record after record of people in deep rebellion and God brings punishment to their lives and they cry out to him in, in humility and God relents and shows mercy. But that's not Saul's instinct, right? He doesn't cry out and abase himself and confess and acknowledge his wrongdoing. You see it happen in Jonah. You see it happen with, uh, in the book of Judges in this incredibly beautiful passage. You even see it happen with Manasseh who was like the worst king that Israel ever had. I mean, he's just awful, awful, awful. He burned his sons in the fire. He's terrible, terrible, terrible. God sends in a foreign army to put a hook in his nose and to drag him away. And Manasseh, in his misery, cries out to the Lord. And it says that God was moved by his entreaty and restored him. Right? But Saul employs none of those, none of those approaches. He never humbles himself and says, Lord, I miss you. I wish you would come back to me. Humble himself. Instead, he just keeps pulling levers. Right? And for those of us that are more given to be strategists than surrenderers, it's, it's, a, it's a telling error, right? Saul just can't stop, accept, acknowledge, and repent. He's going to try something else, try something else, try something else, and it's going to go really badly for him. Lily? Yeah, I, I love what you said about, you know, for those, how did you put it for those of us who are what versus? Strategists versus surrenderers. Because I was thinking the whole time Saul is just trying to control things. There's no humility. That's right. Yeah, it's a drag, right, Lily? Yeah, I hate that part too, okay? So, <laughs> so uh, Paul doesn't get that prophetic word. Um, I mean, Saul doesn't get the prophetic word. God is not going to do it. But Saul is determined to control it. 
no matter what it costs. And so he goes and he finds this witch of Endor. So let's go to verse 8. So Saul disguised himself, putting on outer clothes, other clothes rather, and at night he and the two men went to the woman, consult the spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. By the way, remember, we've seen this over and over where the, the narrator is going to describe things that just happened without comment. It's just kind of this, this is a literal thing that went, that went on. But very, very often these normal things have this layer of significance, this layer of meaning. So I take it that when Saul disguised himself putting on other clothes, that's because that's what he did. But what does that mean in, in Samuel's narrative? He didn't want anybody to know who he was. Yes, okay, that's the normal, literal, kind of right on surface. He's, he's disguising himself so they won't know that he's the king. But what does clothing tend to represent in Samuel's narrative? Identity. What's it? Identity. Yes, and in particular, for in Saul's case, what? His kingship. Remember how David cuts off the hem of his garment because he's not really worthy to be the king? All these different things. It's probably like what the narrator wants us to see is, man, Saul doesn't look like much of a king, does he? Oh, that's right. Because he's not. Right? So the, the author is going to just constantly give us, this is what happened, but look at what it means. It's more of a statement of judgment that Samuel is blowing it again. Okay? Verse 9. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. And then the woman asked, well, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. All right? Obviously, he's desperate. He's gonna, this is where you see that he's going to, like, you know, sneak by all these, all, you know, all the Philistine army to get there because he's so desperate. Um, and then he makes an oath. What is his oath that he makes? Swears to God. What's that? Swears to God. Yes, right. It's so how isn't it strange to swear on the name of Yahweh, who is forbidding this thing under whose judgment you stand? It's like this is a hopelessly contradictory oath, right? Um, he what he means to say is I'm really, really, really not going to kill you, but he kind of makes the wrong invocation when he does so, and the woman accepts it, right? Good enough. As long as you're quiet enough, I mean, as long you know, if you just don't tell anybody, as long as you don't do this, as long as I'm not going to get in trouble, then, then fine. But she still doesn't know that it's Saul. She just thinks that she's going to get away with this and everything will be fine, okay? And then, in verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul, okay? This, I think, is one of the most interesting verses for this question of can mediums and spiritists summon the dead? Okay, those of you that are in the camp that would say uh, that they can, you might like this verse. Um, so who thinks that Samuel is actually being invoked here? And how, you guys think it's really Samuel? Really, really Samuel? Who thinks it's not Samuel? Okay, all right, so let's, let's just have a quick debate. If you think it is, what is your case that the real Samuel is really being raised here? Not raised, but summoned, speaking. Yeah, Herrick? I'm cheating because I got a study Bible. Okay. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> but uh, it says there, uh, he uses the name of the Lord seven times and adds the true prophecy that Saul and his sons will die. And uh, it says the evil, evil spirit will not deliver a true prophecy or true words to Saul as Samuel does here. And then at the end, it skips it. Whatever the limits on a medium's power normally were, like 
Okay, so hang on. Save that part for the moment. Okay, we don't want to get it. First question is, do we think it's, you're, you're saying the evidence that it could be Samuel is that he's saying things that are true, right? Um, not only about what's going to happen to Saul, but he also has, seems to have knowledge of previous conversations that Samuel and Saul had had. And the text says it's Samuel, right? It, it identifies Samuel as the speaker of these words, okay? So there's that. What if you're on the side that says, no, 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 it's not? What, what, is, your case, what is the basis of your case that it's not really Samuel? Yeah, Patricia? I just think if God is saying don't do it, why would he say that if you were actually going to invoke someone and that's what God wants? Hmm. So whether it is Samuel or not, that's not something that God wants. Okay, sure. Yes, okay, so definitely there's something, so something wrong meaning immoral or inaccurate? Something that's going to be for your heart. Yes, okay, for sure, right. So God's warning us against doing it for good reasons, right? Um, is this really Samuel? I don't know for certain if it really is, right? There, there's, I think the primary reason that I would be inclined to say that it's not is because I don't think that's possible, right? I've already, I've got a kind of a a priori conclusion. Like I've already come to the text. I'm like, well, it can't be real because it's not real, right? Um, and that that's actually not as unsound of a thought on this as 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 you might think. We'll, we'll unpack that in a second. Catherine, um, I I just kind of wonder if if I mean God can speak to a donkey, He can speak to the dead. He brought Moses and you know, Moses and Elijah back, and they uh, you know, and then He showed us what the whoever was in hell wanting to. Yeah, okay. So it could be the Lord really is doing something. I, I would say in general, I think our, the best data we have is that this is Samuel. That it's actually really genuinely true that, uh, that this guy gets raised, not raised from the dead, but his, you know, summoned and can speak and is going to have a real conversation with, with Saul through this woman. There are some reasons to question it. Like for instance, as it turns out, Saul can't see Samuel, right? Look at, what, look at how it plays out. Look what it says. Um, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? Which suggests that Samuel is not seeing anything, right? It's all coming through the medium of this medium, right? And the woman says, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. And then Saul says, what did he look, what does he look like? So again, he, he can't see it. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, to which I say, okay, could you please be any more generic, right? Yeah. Um, and then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground, okay? So all of that, and it's like, I think it is, but there's enough, there's some questions in the text that we're not, I would not be dogmatic about that conclusion, Right? But there is a kicker that I think, the thing that finally pushes me over the line, but I'm going to wait for Michael. I mean, Saul wants it to be Samuel. He does. He's already creeped, has a, you know, an idea that that's what, who it is. Yep. The rest of it saying Samuel said it might be just written from his, his perspective, like from his head. It could be. It could be that it's not really Samuel, but it's like Samuel in, square, in scare quotes says, you know, 
da, 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 da. I don't think that's the case, but it could be the case. Here's what, here's what I find most convincing, okay? I think this woman is a fraud. I think she's a, a, a huckster. She's got chains and bells and smoke and whistles and all kinds of stuff. And when she starts banging on her thing and pulling on her chain, Samuel actually shows up. And she is more surprised than anybody. If you look at her response, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said, Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. I think the best explanation for that is that she did not expect anything to happen because she's an absolute fraud. And yet, God's like, all right, you want to dance? Let's dance. That's, what I, that's, I think, the best explanation for this. These guys are generally fake. This woman was fake, but God decided to move through it. Okay, I don't say that dogmatically. I wasn't there. I don't know. But I think that makes the best sense of the text. Okay, uh, You guys can fight it out, whoever wants it. Okay, Tommy. I was just going to say, um, I thought it was interesting, though, that Saul had started out seeking um, what, what God wanted him to do through dreams, through the prophets, through the Urim. And then what does God do? He reveals a prophet to him. Yes. Daniel, and he's like, you know, the prophet was here that he could have been consulted. Yes. Yes, in a way that's going to be, we're about to see this. Saul gets what he wants, which was access to Samuel, and he is not going to like it at all, right? It's going to go very, from this point on, it's going to go very, very badly for him. Okay, Zach, and then we'll come back to Lily. Could it be entirely possible that when the, when the verses say that Saul wore other clothing, it could be like me hiding behind a thin tree and trying to call myself hiding. Since Saul is a public figure, he may still show his face. She could have picked up that he was already, she was already, well, that he was already Saul. Yes. Play to the narrative. So you're saying that her, that it could be that the witch of Endor did not did not learn Saul's identity supernaturally, but just because she's like, wait a minute, I recognize you. There's a, that could be. Mediums or even psychics today are very in tune to perception. That could it could be that everything that's happening here is natural. Could be. And not supernatural. So again, I'll, this is one of those things, I'll tell you, like I'm altogether too happy to be dogmatic when the scriptures are clear. But this has some iffy maybe stuff to it. Lily? I mean, tell me if there's some nuance I'm missing, but I feel like it, it says that she cried out at the top of her voice, and it seems to me that the reason she was yelling was because she realized it was Saul, not because she was shocked that something appeared. I mean, they traveled all across enemy lines. I mean, they must have heard some story with veracity, you know? So I think that, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just inclined to go with as straightforward as the text seems and like God kind of fill in the details on that because it is super outside of our realm of experience. It, it's very much outside of our experience and that, that could all be true. Um, once we, get, once we get past this woman's kind of freak out and the things, what is stunning is that everything that Samuel says about the past is accurate, and everything that Samuel says about the future is going to prove to be accurate. So, maybe. Okay, we're gonna, we're, let's keep moving. I know this, okay, I'll give you one more. Catherine, Kat. I agree with Lily. I think if it was a fake, I think God would have said in the Bible, if it, he would have said, this is somebody of evil spirit, you know, or something like that, instead of saying, yeah. he would have said that. Yeah, it, the narrator seems to suggest that it really is Samuel, okay? Unlikely to be a huge issue in your life, so we can kind of move on, all right? Um, and I hope, it, I hope it won't be, but it seems to me that God can do whatever he wants to do, all right? So, let's go to 28.15. Samuel says to Saul, Samuel? 
says to Saul. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. Underline that. That's what Saul is looking for. I just, what do I do? What do I do? I don't know what to do. Everything's a wreck. And Samuel says, well, why do you consult me? Now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done. And then he gives him a little history lesson. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. And then he switches from past to future. Verse 19. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. What does that mean? Dead. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. He wanted to ha- he desperately wanted a conversation with Saul and he with Samuel and he got it. He wanted to be told what to do and he didn't get that. Instead he got a reminder of his failings and a prediction of his death. Close curtain. Right? It's a rough day for Saul. Yeah, Chris. Uh, that 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 first special reading the first time was loud to me because of just the curious tone of my voice, especially when I was a non-believer of what does it mean to walk with the Lord and have him working in your life and then going to heaven and being with the Lord in the presence of him? Hmm. He mentions here, he's no longer with him on earth. I'm going to speak to you through this weird necromancy, Samuel. But at the same time, you're going to be with me in heaven. What is that? Hmm. You're going to be near me, but not quite with me, or are you going to be at my table? Hmm. Okay, great. So Chris is pointing out, when Samuel says, you will be with me, what is, we, we've identified with me as meaning dead, but does it mean with me in heaven? Does it mean, what, what, what is it, what, how, how particular is that? And the Old Testament has a very, very undeveloped vision of um, what we would call the intermediate state. So we, we tend, uh, let's see. So <laughs> we have, there's, there's a, there's a pretty pervasive error, we've talked about this in this room, that we have a tendency to think there's this world, and then there is the world to come. And the world to come is somewhere else, okay? That we live on earth, and then when we die, we go to heaven and live happily ever after. That is simply not the biblical narrative, okay? The biblical narrative is there is life in this world, and there will be life right here in this world again. Not after you die, but after you're raised from the dead at the return of Christ. Okay, this is where we're going to be. We, we, we live here, we die, and then we, we're, we're raised from the dead. Okay, and the Old Testament really just glosses over, well, yeah, but what's going to happen between death and resurrection? It basically says, yeah, I know you're going to die, but don't worry, you'll be raised. This interval here of between death and resurrection, where we're so eager to go be with Jesus in paradise, um, not only does the Bible not really teach that, that that's an eternal state, but it teaches it in the Old Testament, at the very least, as a very insignificant state. We are not looking forward to going to heaven when we die. Although if you're hidden in Christ, you will. What we are looking forward to is being raised from the dead when Jesus returns to this earth. And so I think that if we try to impose on this passage, what are you saying about the intermediate state? What are you saying about that w- window between death and resurrection? It's not really saying anything about that because it's not very interested in that. He's, I think that I don't think that Samuel... 
is saying, you will be with me in heaven, or you'll be with me in hell, or you'll be with me in whatever. He's saying that you're going to die. Because it, it ju- the Old Testament spends precious little time concerning itself with that word. It's just not trying to be any more, dis- more um, distinct than you're going to die. That makes sense? So we have one word, Sheol, is the word for grave, like the physical hole in the ground. It's the, it's the word for the state of death for both the righteous and the wicked. It's the word for the state of the dead for the, for the wicked. They're lost. Um, and it just, it just doesn't seem to care very much about that, that little window of time. Okay, so I don't, I don't think, I wouldn't, I wouldn't press it too far either way. All right, does that freak anybody out? Can you live with that? Okay, keep going. All right, so let's, let's, let's see what he's going to do. Uh, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Verse 20. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. Saul loves a bad fast. Have you noticed that? He, he does it with his army. He's like, he likes to people, when his army is fighting a war, he's like, nobody eat. This is so dumb, okay? <laughs> Verse 21. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, look, your maidservant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and I did what you told me to do. Now, please listen to your servant. Let me give you some food so you may eat and have strength to go on your way. He refused. I will not eat because he's stupid. But his men joined the woman in urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. And the woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. And the same night they got up and left. Okay? That's a funny little way to end this story. A lot of detail, you know, on like this meal. And so whenever you see a narrator give an undue amount of attention to something that's of no significance, you should probably be curious, why is this significant? So why is this significant? What is, what is the narrator doing here to focus on this woman preparing this meal to provide for Saul? And I'll give you a hint. It's pointing back to something else that's happened, which is going to help us kind of bring this whole thing full circle. Gary? On the night of the original Passover, before the hmm, interesting. they killed a fatted calf, and they ate it, and the next day they left. And Saul, the next day, is going to leave this earth. Okay, interesting, okay. So the, the idea of this meal with a fattened calf, this is a big deal. This world, this is not a world that eats a lot of meat, right? We're not living on meat. And if we do, or maybe we're going to be living on like gamey, you know, like captured food. Not fattened calves, not, not cultivated meat. And so you're going back to this event of the, the Passover where there is this, this significant meal and then an exodus. In the same way here, you're going to have... A very, it's a big deal. This meal is lavish. It's a very significant thing. And then Saul is going to die. We'll see this happen out. Very good. How about within Samuel's narrative? Does this remind you of anything? Can you think of any other woman providing a lavish meal for someone who purports to be the king of Israel? What's this remind us of? There's a contrast. Who are the women that have fed David? Abigail. I think that what we're supposed to see here is it reminds us of Abigail. And what, we're, what, we're, what the author is trying to do this whole time, our study is the life of David. Samuel is about the life of David. But this whole chapter is about Saul. And Saul serves as the foil for David. Okay? In the same way that we are looking, we are peering into David's life because we're trying to learn things about the Messiah. David is the archetype of what the Messiah will be. He gets, he gets so many things right that echo, that, well not echo, that pre-echo, whatever you call that, that foreshadow what Messiah is going to be and do. 
He gets a handful of things wrong, which serve as his counterpoint to what the Messiah will be even greater than David is. But Saul is the anti-type, right? He's the anti-Christ-ish kind of character. And whatever he's doing, he keeps doing badly the things that David is going to do well. Sarah Beth? Or Laura Beth, sorry. Okay, that is really interesting. So the medium is treating treating Saul as her priest. So she's making an offering of a sacrifice to him. Okay, that's interesting because what her her primary vantage point is she's afraid that Saul is going to kill her, right? And so she's trying to ingratiate herself to him. And it may that that's actually really interesting. It may be that she's trying to ingratiate herself to him by invoking these kind of patterns of this is how we appease the angry God, you know, that, that kind of thing. That's really interesting. I had not thought about that, but that, that might be true. Suzanne? That it's food sacrifice to an idol. Pardon me? That meal is like it's food sacrifice to an idol. With Saul being the idol? Still in this, under this heading of like appeasing him? Okay, excellent. The same kind of concept. Kelly? I mean, I thought it could be as simple as she just wants him out. <laughs> she, Get out. she definitely wants him out, but she wants... He's afraid. Yeah, he he he's got he's got a lot going on. He is he has good reason to be fear to be fearful. Okay, now whatever the motives are of the woman, however much she's trying to appease Saul, whatever. What I want you to see is that the author of the book is including these details and dedicating time to it to remind us of David, right? What David? So there's this similarity. Well, it's, it's always a compare and contrast game. There's a similarity here between Saul and David. But my goodness, the vastness of the difference, right? Saul is willing to pull any lever, employ any strategy to overtly disobey the Lord in order to secure his kingdom. And David is the exact opposite. David is the guy that is willing to suffer anything to be, to be up till now. He's gonna, again, he's going to fail, right? But he is doing things right. He is deeply interested in being in sync with the Father, he wants to do, when, when he's called a man after God's own heart, because he's actually pursuing God. And this is about as messianic a theme as you're going to find. The whole time we're watching David's life, we're looking for the hints, we're looking for the things that remind us, how does David resemble, how does David anticipate, how does he point us to what Jesus will really be like when he comes? And in a similar way, we're looking at, and how does Saul invert the picture? How is Saul refusing to do what Jesus would do. The reason that the kingdom is stripped away from Saul is because he doesn't, you know, fulfill the sacrifice. He's going to consult the the mediums and spiritists. But ultimately, and really, it's because he's just such a terrible type. He doesn't point to the Messiah. He he bears none of, he's tall. That's good, right? But in like every other way, he's just a crummy king. He does not bend the knee. He does not genuinely seek the Lord. When Jesus comes, what he will do is so much more like what David has done. Of course, he's going to not only fulfill it, but he's going to overfill it. I just kind of pulled together. Listen to this collection of statements about Jesus' subordination to the Father. Listen to how 
utterly unlike Saul any of these things are. I'm gonna, there's a million of these, and I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll be done. I'm going to pull them all out of John, because John's gospel loves this theme. And there's, this is just a subset. There's three or four times as many as I'm going to read to you. John 5.19, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. He's entirely in sync with his father. John 8, 28. Then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. Jesus says this in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. What's he talking about? His life. His life. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. John 10, 37. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. John 12, 49. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that this command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. John 14, 10. Don't, believe, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. John 14, 24. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. 1431, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. John 17, 21, Jesus prays that we may all be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He sees this absolute intertwinedness. And then we'll stop here. Well, two more. John 18, 11, Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And in 2021, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That whole giant list. He's like, whatever the Father says to say, I say. Whatever the Father says to do, I do. Whatever he wants, whatever he commands, I obey. There is this absolute perfect match between the, between the Father and between me. For Saul, there is just a giant cavernous gap. For David, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. David seeks to obey. He wants to know. He leans in to know. And then when Jesus shows up, it's like perfect and flawless all the day. And then this, among the very last things that Jesus says here, that last one is in John 20, 21. It's the very end of the story. Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. We're invited to conform our lives to Jesus's, just like Jesus conformed his life to the Father, right? So we have these patterns, these types before us. We've got the Saul version that's like, you know, I know what you want me to do, and I've thought about it, and no. And I'm just going to go over here and do this thing. you got the David pattern that says, you know what, I've, I've heard what you want me to do, and I'm going to lean in and try to do it, and then I'm going to fail miserably because I can't. And then you've got Jesus who says, you know what, I know what you want me to do. And I will do it to the most bitter degree because I love you more than I love myself. And he comes to us and he says, follow me. 
right? And in that, as we do, and we find that there's a little bit of Saul in us, maybe on a good day there's some David, right? Right? We have the opportunity to not just become a moralistic people that are just like constantly afraid we're going to get hit, but people who know what it is to be radically loved and deeply cared for, radically forgiven, who can then use that to empower our own lives into submission to the one who says, follow me, right? That's what we're ultimately, we, we, can, we can debate what's going on with the witch of Endor. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know. It's weird stuff. But at the end of the day, the picture is, do I want my life to be, do I want to disregard what God has called me to do? Or do I want to let the love of Christ so radically empower and change me that I become by degrees, increasingly over my life, more and more submitted to the one who gave himself for me? That's where we want to take this. Cool? All right. Chapter 29 next week. Read ahead. We'll talk then. See you. Jeffrey.